Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. celebrating the Federation of Southern Cooperative 51st Annual Meeting. And in the studio, if you will, right here with me, is Cornelius Blanding, who is the Executive Director of the Federation. Good morning, Cornelius. Good morning, Brandon. And how are you today? <laughs> Better than I deserve. <laughs> <laughs> so first, for people that don't know about the Federation of Southern Co-ops, what, what is the Federation of Southern Co-ops? Um, the, the Federation is a nonprofit cooperative association of black farmers, landowners, and cooperatives all around the South. And the Federation was founded out of the Civil Rights Movement back in 1967, so we're a 51-year-old organization uh, that primarily works around three themes, if you will, cooperative economic development, <clears throat> land retention, and advocacy. So really working in rural communities and rural black communities but in all communities, domestically and globally, trying to connect people, trying to connect farmers, trying to connect communities to have control and have sustainable communities. So that's cooperative economic development, mm -hmm. economic development, land retention, and advocacy. Yes, sir. Advocacy means going so, out so with the... Working, working with communities, working with legislators, working to have better programs and policies that impact the people, the communities where we work. Okay, that sounds like I was just at a meeting with Reverend Barber on this Poor People's Campaign, and it seemed like advocacy is what he talks a lot about mm -hmm. in trying to get policy for poor folk. And, and that's extremely important because, uh, you know, uh, what I like to say is that policy, it either promotes poverty or it plays a role in addressing it. And when it's left unchecked, typically it promotes poverty. And so people understanding legislation, understanding policy, understanding the impact that it has on their, has on their lives is important, and it's even more important that they play a role in it. So how many states does the Federation represent? We're, we're, we're chartered to work in 13 states including D.C. The Federation was actually chartered in D.C. back in 1967 because we couldn't get chartered at home in the South. And it still is impossible, almost impossible to get for an organization like the Federation to be chartered now. Uh, but we work in 13 states. We're chartered to work in 13 states. But we have representation. By representation, I mean board representation, network, and a membership in about nine of those states. But we truly dig in and focus on about six of them. And I say that because that's where we have staff, a board member, and our strong network of partners. And so that's where the, the bulk of our work really happens. And what are those six states? 
Alabama, Georgia, Mississippi, South Carolina. Did I say Florida? No. Louisiana. And Texas. Okay, that's seven. That's that well, and seven. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and so we've been growing. <laughs> Alabama, Georgia, Mississippi, South Carolina, Louisiana, Texas, and there's one more. I don't have my. I don't have. Them. Did I say Florida? Did we get Florida? Yeah, that's what that is. That's in half of Florida. And and, it, and 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 there's a lot more action that's starting to happen in North Carolina also. So it probably would be eight. So we're getting. So so we're we're. We're, we're growing. We're reaching out further. And more importantly, a lot of folks are coming in. At this annual meeting where we are, Vernon, you'll probably see representation from a lot more than that. And so just the challenge for us is trying to figure out how do we spread ourselves that thing where we can do the work. And so we depend a lot on our board members, our membership, volunteers, our partners, these networks to get this work done and trying to figure out how do we coordinate that work so it's effective is one of our biggest challenges. So how do you measure how effective you are? Mm -hmm. Because this economic development, this co-op economic development, land retention advocacy, I guess you could say in advocacy you could look at what kind of policies and programs Mm -hmm. you've got created over the years. Mm -hmm. Land retention, are you helping people retain their land? Are they still losing it? And then what kind of economic development, what kind of co-op economic development? You have more co-ops being developed, you're getting bigger. Yeah. So, so, so let me uh, point to a, a couple of things specifically. Okay. So around land retention, the basis of it is about, and unfortunately, it was about starting in a place where we stopped the bleeding. And by that I mean this. There's some statistics that came from this, our statistical services from uh, the census. In 1910, there were roughly about 218,000 black farmers owning about 15 million acres of land. Before yeah, the turn... Wait, wait a minute, that's 15 million, million acres, acres 15. of land. Wait, uh, wait, in, in 1910, that was the peak of black land ownership. Okay, th- did folks get that by 40 acres in a mule? Uh, <laughs> I don't think we ever got our 40 acres <laughs> in a mule. I know we didn't. <laughs> yeah, so, so, so uh, how did they get 15 I, I, million I, I, acres? Our, our people were very enterprising. Um, and, and we have a we have a rich history. We have an infrastructure. We have a, a basis, a foundation to build upon. But unfortunately, there have been so many things that have come into play that have forced the loss of that. So in 1910, that was the peak. But by 1992, before the turn of the century, there were only 18,000 black farmers, roughly, owning about 2.3 million acres. So you see the decline in the number of farmers, black farmers. You see the decline in land ownership. And that matters. That makes a huge difference uh, because we own less and less of this country. We're less and less involved in the environmental aspects of this country. So things are happening to us and not coming from us more and more, and it matters. And unfortunately, the Federation came into play, and and one part of this in terms of land retention was about stemming that tide, stemming that loss. So we got into this when the game was already, we were coming in the fourth quarter, and we're losing. And so you, we're coming into the game and just trying to throw some Hail Mary passes. But to answer your question around this land issue, it's about retaining the land, retaining that land base because it's so important. And so a majority of our work is around that. But there have been some improvements here and there. There have been some folks who have gained some, and there have been some studies. 
And so we're trying to figure out how do we better study that? How do we better assess the impact? We, we hope we're starting to get better. Uh, when you look at our annual report, you'll see some of the statistics, some of the data. But we, we're trying to get better at, at studying that. But, but it has to be more than us. We partner with the National Ag Statistics Service, a part of uh, one part of the USDA, the U.S. Department of Agriculture. So we have some 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 surprising partners, some strategic partners, and we work to figure out how do we work through that, and how do we measure that impact, and how do we build our work around that. Okay, so I just want to go back. 1910, there was 250,000, 280,000 farmers. 200, uh, no, about 218,000. 218,000 farmers. Black farmers. With 15 million acres of land. Mm -hmm. And so we lost 200,000 farmers by 1992. It's down to 18,000. From mm -hmm. 218 to 18. Yep. Black farmers. From 15 million acres of land to 2.3 million <laughs> acres of land. So there was a huge need for the Federation because it would be interesting. If we, we can't figure this out, but if there was no Federation and with this land retention, maybe we'd only have 0.3 million acres oh, of land yeah, if, if you guys weren't around. Yeah, or maybe none. You know, who knows? Yeah. Uh, and that's the point. And uh, it was so alarming that there was a commission, a, commission, a civil rights commission that was created. And that Civil Rights Commission, the, the, the report on it came out and said that if the trend continued the way it was, by the turn of the century, by the year 2000, there would be no black farmers. <laughs> That's what the report said. Okay. So, okay. <laughs> I hadn't read the report, but that's what I was thinking the way we were losing. So, okay. Monica Rain from your office was on the show once, and we got more calls that day because she was talking about the different ways that folks was taking the land, and it was literally taking, mm -hmm. okay, particularly through heirs. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to get into that today because you only have a few minutes before you have to go to your board meeting. So what kind of co-op development have you guys been doing? Mm -hmm. Okay, so, so great question. So I mentioned earlier that our organization, we're an association of black farmers, landowners, and cooperatives. But cooperatives is the core part of what our organization is. The Federation was founded by 22 cooperatives. 22 cooperatives from all around the South came together from Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, South Carolina, Texas, Tennessee, Florida, all around the South. There were 22 co-ops came together, and they came together to create their own organization, this association, this cooperative of cooperatives, if you will, okay. um, to basically be there too be there to, 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 to provide economic opportunities. Again, we were created out of the civil rights movement, and at that time, as you know, there was a lot of social unrest, and the cooperatives was the economic side of that. When black folks registered to vote, as an example, they were sharecroppers in most cases. They were kicked off their land. If they worked, they lost their job. So you have to have an economic uh, alternative in those communities. And cooperatives gave them the opportunity to create their own businesses, their own economic base, where they could participate politically, where they could do the advocacy side of things, where they could register to vote. And so that was important. And, and, and Vernon, I always say that in order for a community, an organization, or anything to be sustainable, to be successful, it has to have an economic base, a political base, and a code of conduct. And so a cooperative gives you that. 
It's a base to create resources, a basis to create wealth. You talk about people coming together to form their own business that's jointly owned and controlled. Their own business, their own economic base. So it has to have that to, to, to generate resources. You've got to have resources. It gives the political base because people in these cooperatives, in these organizations, in these businesses, they learn to conduct business and they learn leadership development skills on their own. They teach themselves that in the process of organizing or sustaining that business. They then go on. There has been many cases. They go, they go on to run for public offices. They go on to become uh, over school boards, various things in their own communities, and that's been the history of it. So they then get that political experience and, and breath, if you will. And then when you talk about code of conduct, it doesn't matter if we have an economic base or a political base if we don't have any rules to govern ourselves, if we don't understand the importance of utilizing our own economic basis, if we don't understand the importance of being politically active, if we don't understand those things, it doesn't matter because we lose them. And the church at many times was that. They gave us some kind of code of contact, code of conduct, even if it was just spiritual. But they gave us that. And the co-ops build onto that. They give you those bylaws and tell you, here's how you operate. We then start learning whether it's Robert's rule of order of how to conduct the business or how, to, how important the bylaws are because it gives us that code. Now, here's how we behave. Here's how we act. Here's how we work together. Here's how we act cooperatively. It gives you those things. Even if you have an economic base, if you all have a political base and if you all have self-interest, you go different ways. It doesn't matter. So how do we operate within that? confines of that economic base or that political base. So that code of conduct is just important, if not more. That code of conduct that you're talking about, I went directly to, and I see a lot of bylaws will have the cooperative values and principles that was created in 1844 right outside of England with everyday people, people sewing or the textile industry. So you got the folks at the lower end, they were working poor again. They created these uh, values. I like the values of honesty, mm-hmm. openness, social responsibility, and caring for each other. Mm-hmm. Those those codes and, and, and then those seven, seven principles. And you'll see those embedded in a lot of the bylaws of, of co-ops to give you that. I, I never thought about economic base, political base, and code of conduct. Neat. Thank mm-hmm. you, bro. Mm-hmm. So You're welcome. <laughs> how, how has it been for you working for the Federation? Uh, it's, it's been a whole lot of things. Uh, it started out as just a, it was a blessing. Uh, I never knew anything like the Federation existed. I, I've been with the Federation now 21 years, and I say I stumbled upon up it. And I stumbled upon it because of other folks, other mentors who worked with me years when I didn't know anything. And, and I know a little bit more now. Uh, but I stumbled upon it, and it was, a, it was a blessing. It was a surprise to see black people, communities, owning their own infrastructure. I stumbled upon it in Epps, Alabama. I walked on the training center of the Federation. The Federation, this organization, owns over 1,200 acres of land, and a training center sits on one track of that 1,200 acres. And I was at the training center, and I was there during a community event that was being held at the Federation, facilitated by the Federation. And I looked around, and I was amazed. And I was even more amazed when I learned that the folks who were there who were putting it on, who were participating in it, owned it. 
and I haven't left, <laughs> and I haven't left. So, so it's been a lot of things. It's been amazing. It's been a blessing. It's been a challenge. Uh, but when you love things, the challenges are worthwhile. You sometimes wake up in the morning looking for the next challenge, that's right. and that's where I find myself a lot of times with the Federation. But, hey, it keeps me moving. It keeps me in check. It keeps me humble. It gives me the opportunity to serve, and that's what my grandmother and my mother told, always told me, that hey, if you're not serving, you're not doing anything. All right, brother, caring for one another. So I'm looking at your financial statement. You have assets and you have liabilities. <laughs> and it looks like you got more assets than liabilities. <laughs> and my job is to make sure we always have that. <laughs> <laughs> and assets are what you own and liabilities is what you owe. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, too many people in America owe more than they own. Mm -hmm. And they call that a negative net worth. And some people think if you don't have any net worth financially, you're not worth anything. Mm -hmm. And they treat you that way. Yeah. And unfortunately, that's what too many politicians and folks in power would treat everyday people. Like they are a problem and not that poverty is a problem. So it's like, how do you help those everyday people in the Federation get a net worth, a positive net worth? And so, and let me make one very important distinction, and it's really not about me helping them. It's about what the Federation is, about a, a group of people helping themselves, and they've hired me to carry out those wishes. So my job is to go out and find out how to do the things they want to do. My job is to help find the resources to do the things they want to do. So, and, and the Federation is no different than many people in this country and in this world. They know how to help themselves. They just need the resources to do so. They need some assistance to do so. They need some, some technical advice or knowledge to do so. And so, and unfortunately, they don't usually have the resources to hire those kind of folks. There's no different than everybody else in this world that do. They hire their own lawyers. They hire accountants. They hire expertise. They hire judges. They hire politicians. <laughs> and so, so, you know, how, how do we, how do we group our resources to do the same? And, and that's what the question is, and that, that's what the Federation is. And sometimes I wake up and realize the Federation is bigger than I even know. And it's a blessing learning more and more about it every day and being a part of it. So when you talked about self-help, uh, people helping themselves, that took me to the co-op value. That's the first one they talked about based on the values of self-help, people helping themselves, self-responsibility, democracy, equality, equity, and solidarity are the main principles of, of a cooperative. I guess then the, the reason for this program, the reason the National Co-op Bank is sponsoring this program is to get people, more people to know about co-ops, that maybe if they know about co-ops, they can find folks like you guys in the Federation to get that techni technical help or other organizations like Corporate Development Foundation, CDF, to get funding to start your own food co-op or whatever other kind of co-op you may want to do. Okay, so how do how do we get people to know about the federation? How do you how do you get that? And let me I'll go all the way back. You said that you have uh, staff in six of those states. Mm -hmm. Yes. And what do they do? So so we have a yeah in six states we have facilities we have infrastructure. And so and the Federation, fortunately, owns all of its offices. It owns its training center. 
Uh, I work out of what we call the administrative office in Atlanta, in East Point, a part of Atlanta. There we have roughly 10 staff, and we do the administrative side of the organization. Uh, that's where our director of finance, that's where I, you mentioned Monica Range earlier. That's where our director of land retention and advocacy is. That's where our director of co-op development is. That's where our director of communications is. That's where we have some amazing administrative staff who do the administrative work of the organization. But we also have a training center that sits on 1,200 acres, and that's in Epps, Alabama. And what uh, what we like to say is the center of everywhere, the center of the world. Epps. Uh, and, yeah, and John Zippert, our one longtime staff member, one of my mentors, talks about Epps being the center of the universe. Uh, but Epps is a small place about 50 miles west of Tuscaloosa, Alabama, about 50 miles east of Meridian, Mississippi. Uh, and it's the biggest employer in Epps. <laughs> We have about 10 staff usually there at Epps and a lot of support staff. Uh, again, that's where we have the grounds, the training center. We have field offices in Mississippi. We have field offices in Georgia, uh, in Louisiana, South Carolina. So there's some field offices uh, where we have what we call outreach specialists, head up, led and headed by what we call a state coordinator in each state, and then some administrative staff, and, and more importantly, outreach specialists, folks who are actually the core of this work, the ones who are out there interacting with our membership, with the community, with black farmers and landowners and cooperatives every single day. And our job in the administrative office is to provide the administrative support for that. Our job at our training center is to provide a mechanism for training based on the needs that they see out in the field. So all of it work together, centered around administrative folks, outreach staff, and coordinators. Sounds like you got a lot of work to do, man. <laughs> a whole lot. Do you like what you do? I love what I do. I can see myself doing anything else. All right, baby. What do you have plans? I know Epps, I'm going to go down there tomorrow and maybe Saturday. So you have training down there. You have a dinner tonight. Mm -hmm. And you're honoring... Ralph Page? Yes, sir. So, so thanks for asking. So so we're celebrating our 51st anniversary. Last year was a milestone for us, and we did it big. Okay. Uh, so we're celebrating our 51st anniversary. We have our annual meeting every year. Third, it, it, The business meeting is the third Saturday of August. So that's our fiscal year. But the organization meets, the whole organization meets every year in August. Third week, basically, third, uh, around the third Saturday. So tonight, Thursday... We'll start off with board meetings where business of the organization is conducted on the board level. We have what we call our Estelle Witherspoon Lifetime Achievement Award Banquet, where we honor somebody who's lived a lifelong life, life, life of service, if you will. And this year we're honoring one of our own, our, our former executive director, my, my predecessor, my mentor, my friend, uh, Ralph Page. Uh, Ralph Page served the organization for 46 years. And he served as the executive director for 30 of those 46 years. He was the second executive director of the organization. His predecessor, predecessor was uh, Charles Prejean. And, uh, and I'm the third uh, full-time executive director for the organization. So in the 51 years, you've had three executive, three executive directors. And there have been a couple of folks who played some, some huge roles in terms of filling the void in the gaps, doing things. Uh, but three executive directors for the most part. And uh, Ralph Page was the second. He passed a couple of weeks or so ago. Uh, we're honoring him posthumously uh, with the Estelle Witherspoon Lifetime Achievement Award. That's today, Thursday. So we have many of our partners, many of our supporters here. Um, and this is a 
It's a celebration for us, a celebration of the recipient and this year being Ralph Page. But it's also a time where our partners get a chance to come together and see the breadth of the organization, hear about the breadth of the organization. Uh, and it's a fundraiser for us as well. Then on Friday and Saturday, we go down uh, to the mothership. We go down to Epps, Alabama, to our training center, uh, which is about 100 miles west of here, of Birmingham. And we start out Friday with some um, conversations with USDA. We usually have a USDA panel that consists of every agency within USDA. And they talk about their programs, about their agencies, about their work. And more importantly, they interact directly with the membership, with the farmers, with the landowners from all around the South and many other partners. And there's, there's conversations, there's tough questions, there's honest answers, there's conflict, <laughs> there's rejoicing, and we finished the night with a fish fry, so we know that we're all still friends. We just got to figure out how do we do this work together because at the end of the day, what's at stake is this country. And we have, we, we collectively, and especially we black people, we have to play a role in the progress of this country as well. When we start talking about the natural resources, the air, the water, and the soil. So we learn that, we understand that, and we understand what our role is and that we are part of this. And when we understand that, when everybody understands that, then we all get into the fight to make sure we save that black-owned land, to make sure we stop that decline, because it's important. We got to have a stake in this country, and we have a role to play. But we end Saturday with a business meeting, with our annual meeting with the membership, uh, with what we call state caucuses. It's the, it's the crux of this organization where each state cuddles up in their own corner, and they talk about what this organization needs to do for them, what it needs to continue to do, what it needs to change, or whatever. They talk about the problems, and our job is the staff to listen. And we find out and we take that, and those are our marching orders for the, for the next year. Um, and we're in, and I give my message as the executive director to the, to the membership. But that's our weekend. It's our 51st anniversary. Washington, D.C.'s News Talk, 1450 AM, W-O-N-9-5-1-9. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. The program is Everything Cooperative. I am in Birmingham, Alabama. We just interviewed... Mr. Cornelius Blanding, he had to go to a board meeting at 10 o'clock, so he had to leave us. And we have Mr. Bruce Harold, who is the outreach specialist for Louisiana. But the National Co-op Bank is sponsoring this program to give everybody out there information about co-ops. NCB's mission is to support and be an advocate for America's cooperatives and their members, especially in low-income communities, by providing innovative financial and related services and Mr. Cornelius Blanding told us that the Federation of Southern Co-ops, who's having their annual meeting this weekend, they do economic, cooperative economic development, land retention, and advocacy work. And they have state representatives, state offices in six states. And Mr. Bruce Harold is the outreach specialist for Louisiana. Good morning, sir. Good morning. What does an outreach specialist do? Okay. Um, we work with small and minority farmers in rural areas. We also work with individuals in the, in the urban communities also with urban gardens and with urban agriculture. 
So you try to get some good food in the city, huh? Yes. And that's all I think of Louisiana is New Orleans and their food, food and music. So, Bruce, how long have you been with the Federation? Approximately seven to eight years. Okay. So how did you get to the Federation? I, don't, I met Mr. Uh, Mr. Blanding uh, about seven, eight years ago. He was, he was working on a pilot program with cooperatives you know, in Louisiana, and he asked me uh, would I be interested in joining the Federation, and I did my uh, some homework about the Federation, and I joined. And what was your brand. background? Were you a farmer, or what did you do? Yes, I was a farmer, and I, I have a degree in agriculture, so I've been in agriculture my entire life. You have a degree in agriculture from what what college? Okay, from well now it's ULL. When I got my degree, it was the University of Southwestern Louisiana, USL. Mm-hmm. Now it's uh, ULL, University of Louisiana in Lafayette. University of Louisiana in Lafayette. Okay, in yes. Lafayette. Mm-hmm. Okay, in agriculture. What do you guys learn? How to how to milk a cow? <laughs> <laughs> no, um, I never milked a cow. Okay. <laughs> um, my, I'm a fourth generation farmer. My dad, we uh, we raise uh, livestock like hogs, you know, cows, and we uh, we raise grain such as you know, wheat, soybeans, corn. Okay. In Louisiana. <clears throat> yes, in Louisiana. Yeah, in central Louisiana. I grew up in a, a small town called Simsport, Louisiana. And this is where we form uh, currently today. And, and it's called what's the name of the city? Simsport, Louisiana. Simsport. Is it a port? Is it no. A- um, it's on the Atchafalaya River, Simsport. Okay. What was it like growing up on a farm in Simsport, Louisiana? <laughs> uh, it was hard work, um, but it made me a man. It made me who I am today. Um, you know, it was long hours. We didn't have tractors. We know with air conditioning. We, when we grew up, you know, we ate dirt. <laughs> Most of the day, you know, on that, uh, on the tra- driving the tractor, uh, but it, you know, it it made me a man. It really did. So Simsport is that S I M M E S P O R T. One word or two. One word. Oh, I got it. Simsport, Louisiana. Mm-hmm. All right. I don't know what it would be like growing up on a farm, and what what I think of it with what I've I've heard. We we farmed about an acre of land. We grew mm-hmm. stuff about an acre of land, that, you know, corn and green beans and tomatoes and cabbage and potatoes. Mm-hmm. And the only part I liked was harvesting. <laughs> I really don't. I didn't like that much of the eating, but I had to harvest mm-hmm. in order to eat. So, but how many acres did you all? Um, back then, uh, between 150 to 200 acres uh, when I was growing up. We increased to uh, 800 acres at one time. And we uh, lost property. Uh, well, landowners gave the uh, property to other um, farmers. But now uh, I'm farming approximately about, about 200 acres now. We are. So you are farming now? Yes, sir. So you work with mm-hmm. the Federation? Mm-hmm. We've, I work with the Federation on a uh, part-time basis in uh, Louisiana, and my sons uh, 
we, we form together. How many sons? I have two boys, two sons. Okay. You're making them a man too, huh? <laughs> yes, sir. They're both in agriculture. Um, my youngest son, he's a senior at the University of Arkansas. Uh, he's majoring in agribusiness. When he graduates, you know, he plans on, you know, working uh, in the, for, the gov- for a governmental agency or in the agricultural field for uh, three or four years. Then he plans on coming back and working for the family business. See, that's what I was thinking, that agriculture was the business side of it. Uh, but I guess it's the cropping, how do you, how do you, learning how to get the best out of the soil, how to get the best crops, or how to make the soil where it won't mm-hmm. get to where it was like during the de- depression of a dust bowl, but how you, how you manage the soil, the land, mm-hmm. and get the most utility out of it, both in terms of farming uh, animals and my farming skill set was very small, and I keep thinking about, because I live in D.C., of urban farming, okay. which you were talking about in the cities, but but getting uh, some organic farming, again, because I like vegetables more than anything else. Mm-hmm. So I've been thinking about doing that, but I, can't, I cannot even imagine the hard work of farming. That's like, I don't know, what, 5 <laughs> o'clock in the morning to 10 o'clock at night or something. <laughs> yes, it's long hours. Uh, especially like right now when it's you know it's so hot, you get up and like say five o'clock in the morning. You work until you know noon. It gets too hot, and uh, we let the workers uh, you know take off a take a break. Yes, sir. Now uh, you know we we also we raise fresh vegetables. My wife and I, Rena Harold, we started raising fresh vegetables uh, a few years ago on our own on a small scale. We wanted to, uh, to do it the old-fashioned way, and we want to get our hands on. So we did all the labor and all. We realized if you work in that field and you harvest your crops, you're too tired to go and sell them. Okay. Okay. (laughs) So, um, you know, we had to, you know, hire hire individuals to help us. It's a must. Mm -hmm. You can't do it all. So how do you sell them? We sell them uh, to markets. We are... being part of the Federation, we sell some of our vegetables to another cooperative in uh, Mississippi, Indian Springs. Uh, we sell, we have a, a large um, church base. We sell a lot of our vegetables, you know, locally and to our uh, church members. I was wondering, through the Federation, the, the six principles, six co-op principles, cooperation among co-ops, mm-hmm. and with the Federation having so many different cooperatives uh, as members that the farmers could then sell to food co-ops or other businesses, but I was mainly thinking of food co-ops. In some churches, I know in our church in D.C., we had, we're different, fa- we, we, we would pool our monies and then buy. And so we get a lot more when we buy in bulk like that and then fresh mm-hmm. foods. So is that the kind of thing you're doing at churches now around there? No, well, we just sell to individuals in, right. in the church. Uh, okay. Yes, sir. You know, that program that you're talking about, we've heard of it uh, where the churches will buy, let's say, uh, 100 boxes of vegetables. Right. And, you know, the members just, And they separate know, them. That's right. Yes, sir. Do you know with that, I found out we were getting so much food we could not, we couldn't consume it all. It was family of four. We couldn't consume it. So we, I ended up mm-hmm. giving it to my sisters and stuff. And so 
it got to be, and it was interesting, that was probably the best buy in terms of the city of getting good quality food and the volume of it. Yes. So, okay, so you do do this working with Indian Springs in Mississippi. Yes, sir. That's right. We uh, we sell them like sweet potatoes, and right now we're selling okra and purple herb peas. Um, we buy all of our watermelons from them each year. From that from mem- uh, from their members, they've got the sweetest watermelons. But a shout out to them, but they've got the sweetest watermelons around. Well, this is Indian Springs. Yes. So you sell to them and buy from them. That's correct. We work together. That's correct. So do you just buy watermelon for you or for the community? Well, uh, for the community. We buy them um, and, you know, sell them, put the market on them, and sell them to uh, individuals. Okay. Now you mm-hmm. make me want some watermelon here. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm about to take some back to our engineer, Stanley. Sound like he wants some watermelon, too. <laughs> okay. Uh, yes. And we, uh, I'm from a Vols Parish. Okay, at Simsport, it's in a Vols Parish in Louisiana, and we sell. Well, we grow the sweetest sweet potatoes in the country. So you want the best sweet potatoes come to Louisiana, to Vols Parish. They may sell them in, and they may grow them in other areas, but a Vols Parish has the sweetest sweet potatoes. You have any sense? And I'm being a little scientific, but why? What is it about the soil? The soil. Yes, it's the soil. Um, that it grows in. It, it, I don't know. It is it, okay. They're sweet. So I I drove down here because I stopped in North Carolina, and so I drove. I'm in Birmingham and I'm going to Epps. But you're making me want to go on to the <laughs> <laughs> Indian Springs and Mississippi, mm-hmm. and then come on down there and get me some sweet potato. That's right. Because I found I like just baking the sweet potato, and then just cutting and putting some butter on. I don't mm-hmm. need nothing else. And if it's sweet like you're talking about, that's... Oh, yes, they are. And when you bake them, the juice or the, or the syrup that comes right out while you're baking them. So make sure you put them on a pan. Yeah. It'll, it'll mess your, uh, your oven up. Okay. <laughs> All right. So we've gone from economic empowerment, co-op economic empowerment, uh, political... Yeah, having a political base and a code of conduct to how we how we gonna cook our sweet potatoes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so we're gonna take a break in a minute, and then I want to come back and talk to you specifically more about what you all do in the office there, okay, okay in Louisiana to help out the farmers and growing the uh, vegetables in the city, and what you might do to to help to create co-ops. Okay. But we'll be right back. Please don't touch that dial. Washington, D.C.'s News Talk, 1450 AM, WOL, 95.9 FM. Information is power. This is Vernon Oaks. Uh, we're bringing information about this co-op economic development, the different ways that cooperatives can help a community. Uh, 
an individual, a family, to get economic power. Matter of fact, Dame Pauline Green uh, said she was the president of the International Cooperative Alliance, and she said that co-ops help people to come out of poverty with dignity. And I really have liked that. It's with the dignity, not only coming out of poverty, but learning about how you manage a business and how you manage relationships. Um, and then this learning process is where people get that dignity. And this is why WOL makes a great, great partner because they know that information is power. But what I've also know and have learned is that information by itself doesn't do it. What does it is using that information. Information becomes power when you use it. If you don't use it, there is no power. Like having a gallon of gasoline in the corner, it has no value whatsoever. It's not to put a spark to it that it becomes powerful. So we're giving you information. We're hoping you're going to use it. And I'm in Birmingham, Alabama at the Federation of Southern Co-ops annual meeting. Mr. Cornelius Blandy was on the first half an hour, uh, who was the executive director of the coalition, and Mr. Bruce Harold is the outreach specialist part-time in, in the uh, Federation of Southern Co-ops, and he runs the, the Louisiana office, and he's an outreach specialist. So he said he's been doing that for a few years now. He's been a farmer, has a degree in agriculture, has two boys who's in farming, following their dad's foot. He's a fourth-generation farmer, so they've been doing this thing for a minute in Louisiana, in the South, and they've been through a lot. I don't, he didn't have to tell me this. I already know it. He's he a black man in America for four generations, so they've been through a bunch in Louisiana and the South. But it sounds like they're doing well. They manage as much as 800 acres, raising hogs and cattle and grain. So, Mr. Hurl, can would you tell me and the folks that are listening uh, some examples of the farmers that you're helping and what you do at the Federation to help these farmers? Okay, yes. Um, in the past year and a half, I held uh, workshops in the urban areas of Louisiana, in, in New Orleans and Baton Rouge. It was a, a program to let the individuals who had a, um, a desire or a, a, a want to farm uh, to tell them about the urban agriculture uh, program that that uh, initiative that they had at USDA Rural Development they could uh, get a they could qualify for a high tunnel which it's similar to a greenhouse but in a greenhouse you grow your plants and you raise your plants in pots, you know, uh, on tables and what have you. But the high, on, in the high tunnel, uh, it's a covering, but you're forming in the, you're forming um, the soil. You're growing the plants in the soil. Okay. And, you know, an individual, they can qualify to up to, uh, it was like $20,000 to get a high tunnel. Uh, you didn't have to own the property. You just, you just have to have a, um, a lease. I think it was like three, at least three to five years. And, and you could qualify, you know, uh, for a high tunnel uh, through, you know, USDA uh, Rural Development, excuse me, NRCS, the Natural Resource Conservation Service. They had an um, urban ag initiative. Is that still going on? Because it sounds like uh, 
people like me in D.C. could maybe do that, too. Would that, you know? Um, it's, I, it could be. I, I don't know if it's in D.C., but, uh, yeah, yes, you can, uh, you can reach out to your uh, local uh, NRCS office, and they can let you know if that uh, pro- particular program is offered. Now, with, uh, with NRCS, uh, different states have different needs. You know, one program may be offered in one state where it's not offered in, in another one. Okay. You know, okay. It's, all, it's based upon need. But this higher tunnel program uh, is it, uh, for urban agriculture. So high tunnel, do you know how big this this? You say it's not like a greenhouse because a greenhouse, you're going to grow it on tables. You're going to grow whatever and then in pots. Well, yes, it's like so, a greenhouse, but instead of growing on the tables, you know, in pots, you're, you're forming, you're, you're raising your uh, your plants or your trees or shrubs or whatever in the soil. The, what it does is it, it extends the growing season. Let's say you're raising uh, tomatoes. Um Tomatoes, you may, um, normally you start, but let's say in Louisiana, you start raising your tomatoes, uh, you plant them outside, say, in March or April. Well, the high tunnel program, you can start in uh, January because you're covering, uh, you're covering um, the area and you're, uh, you're manipulating the temperature. Okay. Okay. I'd imagine it would still be hard in D.C. since January and February can very cold, uh, snow and cold. But in in Louisiana, I could I could possibly see it. You still have mm-hmm. colder weather, but not the snow. You don't get the snow down at it. Re- Maybe. Rarely. Rarely. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Ours is regular. <laughs> so, okay. So it extends the growing season. But how big is this tent, if you will? I'm gonna call it that. That's what I can visualize. How big is it? Well, you can get them uh, different uh, sizes. It all depends on your need. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, if you have, a, let's say, a half an acre, you may get it, let's say, 50 by 100. You know, or, you know, it, it, it all depends on uh, your need okay. and what you qualify for and the amount that you qualify for. You just want to make sure you can get, a you know, a small tractor, you know, um, uh, inside of the... Um, the high tunnel, so you can work the saw. I thought you used a pick and a shovel. That's what we used to use. <laughs> <laughs> no, to to turn the saw was interesting. We had a horse. Uh, uh, one of our neighbors had the horse with the the plow. With the plow. Yes. Okay. And he would turn the soil, mm-hmm. put it down, and make the rows. And then we would come. But we had, we did it with a pick. I mean, yeah, okay. We could have okay. That's going back a little bit. All right. All right. I wouldn't want to do that today. Uh, but fifty by hundred. That's just an example. Yeah, you know, it, yeah. It could be a hundred by you know two hundred, or one fifty by three hundred. You know, it's different sizes. It all depends on your need and what you're planning on doing. Yeah, I was thinking about what the backyards in the, in the city might be, and mm-hmm. that could be fifty by a hundred. Okay. Could now, be. Uh, another thing, before uh, you'd have to see if you have any zoning ordinances in your uh, in your city, because they may not allow. An, an individual to have a high tunnel. Got it. I'm writing it down because I'm quite interested in it. I've been interested in growing. Now, the people that do this, I would imagine, particularly if it's 100 by 300, they are going to sell this product. They can't use all of that for a family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So 
do you help them and how do you market that too or do they do that on their own well uh, they do it on their own now um, you know what it, that's uh, that's where uh, cooperative development comes in I tried to work with a group or try to put on the workshop I tell the, uh, the farmers or the individuals who were at the workshop if they can start a cooperative get you know at least you know seven to ten uh, or so uh, farmers who want to start farming, they can start a cooperative, okay? It's like, okay, let's say they all qualify for a high tunnel. Let's say it's 10 individuals. They all get a high tunnel, okay? Instead of um, each one of them buying on the small tractor, well, if they're part of the cooperative, they can um, buy one tractor and they can share the, uh, the tractor. Got it. Or, or the equipment. You know, that's going to help them on their cost. They can buy seed in bulk, which would help with that cost also. Okay. So I just got a note from our producer, Pat Thornton, that you need to talk up a little bit. I turned you up a little bit. Okay. We were both low. So if if you get five, six, seven people that want to do this. Mm-hmm. Now, there is a young lady in D.C. that's using part of the land of one of the colleges, universities up there, and she's created a, a farm. And then she's packaging it and selling it to people, and they've created a co-op where the individuals that buy it belong to the co-op. And they're similar to the church thing I was telling you about. Yes. So that, that every week they get bags of vegetables, depending on whatever whatever she's harvesting, and that seems to be going quite well. Mm-hmm. Okay, so there's different ways of doing it. That's right. Okay. Let's say, you know, uh, it's cooperative, uh, these, you know, ten farmers. They can get together. They can market their uh, products initially as naturally raised. You, you can't say that, uh, that it's uh, organic because you have to have that certification. Right. But they can get more for their products. They said it's naturally raised and, you know, using no chemicals. Right. Okay, so they can get, a, a, you know, better uh, a better price for their products. So do you like what you're doing? And uh, you, you said this farming was hard work. It made you a man. Do you like farming? Do you like this, this work with the, with the cooperative, the Feder- no, Federation sir. of Southern Cooperative? No, sir, I don't. I love it. <laughs> you don't like uh, it. You love it. Okay. Yes, sir. Okay. And, you know, um, again, my boys, they're following my footsteps. They're gonna, uh, they want to form, and they want to uh, do what we do, what, what I do. Uh, helping other uh, farmers and young men in the, uh, in agriculture. And so you followed your dad, your dad followed his dad, his dad followed his dad. Yes, sir. Four generations. Yes, sir. Thank you for listening, and please have a wonderful, wonderful cooperative week. We'll see you next Thursday. Washington, D.C.'s News Talk, 1450 AM, W.O.S. at 95.